Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I am your host, Philip Coover, a partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. Today, I have with me my frequent co-host, Jay Augustine, also a partner in Ice Miller. Jay, thanks for being a part of this again. You know, it's always good to get Turner and Hooch back again, whether it's the Tom Hanks version or the new version. I'm always the dog. That's your best one yet, Jay. All right. So today we have uh, another set of great guests. We have uh, Winter Spring Capital. We have Nick Earls and Eric D. Nicola. Eric, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. So guys, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about Winter Spring Capital and who you are. I just, I really like just for the listeners, uh, I really like where we're catching Eric and Nick in their career and on their upside. It's just, they've been doing this, they're professionals, but I really like that they, you know, they're going to be able to tell their story of how they've put their, their business together and really made a strong go of it. I think sometimes when you talk to people at the tail end of their career, it's been so long since they, they made it, so to speak, that, you know, they kind of, they've lost a little bit of the, the nexus between how they feel in that story. But here we have um, a company that is doing big deals and making big moves. And, um, you know, we, we'd love to hear your story about the origin of winter spring and, and what you all are doing in the market today. Absolutely. So Eric and I have been friends almost 20 years, met each other in high school Um Played football together, powerlifting, played video games together, lots of team-oriented stuff. Always kind of had a little bit of a maybe rebellious streak. Didn't uh, see ourselves working for a big company for the rest of our lives. So just kind of had this pie-in-the-sky idea of, you know, maybe we'll start a company someday. We had a couple other friends who would say this too, but went our separate ways in college and um, I got into the real estate industry. I got my real estate license and was selling commercial real estate, smaller apartment buildings. And I said to Eric, why don't we, uh, maybe real estate is kind of the way to get into owning a company and, you know, kind of getting out of working for someone else. So we had this plan and we we're saving up for a, a couple of years actually. Um, and we wanted to buy a rental property um, and do kind of the fix it up and, and rent it out sort of tried and true method. But we saw a, a really good opportunity in the condominium space here in Boston where we live. And so I, I kind of came from a construction background. My brother's a carpenter and we actually, our first project was a condominium multifamily, a small one, three units. And that was in 2015, and we've been doing it ever since. And Eric, what's your background uh, before you joined up with Winter Spring? So I ended up going to school in New Jersey. As Nick said, you know, we've known each other almost 20 years at this point, and we wanted to do this. We wanted to have a company together. We didn't know what it was, but it was just the goal of financial freedom. You know, our families won't have to worry about, you know, the next this or that and can play any sports they want, our kids, whatever. That was kind of our initial impetus of this. And like he said, we didn't really want to work for someone else. That was kind of our thing. And I, and so I went to school down in New Jersey. Um, I worked in New York city for a while. And, um, I remember, you know, kind of an anecdote I always mention is the first like minute of when I sat down at my first job out of college, which I thought was great. This is great. I was working in public equity. This is an awesome job for a young kid. 
but I could tell I started looking at the clock like right away and I'm saying, I'm going to do this till I'm 65. There's no way this is possible. It's the first minute of the job. And, uh, so, you know, we, I continued that for a while. Nick was working up here in real estate. Um, and so finally we, you know, we, we were always talking cause we were still friends and, uh, you know, I had to move back up here and we decided let's do it. You know, we saved up, we made that first investment that he's talking about and we've kind of continued to roll it in since then. I mean, I, I had some experience, like I said, in public equity and private equity. I went to school for finance, uh, with sort of a technology twist to it. I went to an engineering school. Um, so it, it seemed like such a great fit to make it work. And it was our goal all along and kind of the rest so far as, uh, as history, I guess. Nick, how would you say your skills, your and Eric's skills complement each other? I, you know, I think when when two friends come together, you know, people are friends for a variety of reasons, but generally there's a, you know, just a, a connection, a complementary nature to those kinds of relationships. In a professional setting, how have you guys found your relationship evolving and what skills do each of you bring uh, to kind of advance the ball down the field? The good thing with us, you know, we've been friends for so long. Uh, I said to someone else a couple of days ago, we got all our fighting done when we were 16 and 17 so there's not much conflict even when we disagree it's very low intensity so there's a lot of overlap there's a lot of things we do kind of collaboratively and we wouldn't make a decision without consulting the other person but then there's some things where you know i'd say for me it's more i'm good on the marketing side building the brand you know writing free content for people to learn about real estate and a lot of kind of the long-term planning, I would say, is comes from me. Not that Eric doesn't do that also, but he's really good at managing kind of day-to-day. I've described it more as like he's like a CEO and I'm more of like an entrepreneur type. Um, so that's those, it's pretty complimentary skill set, actually. That's awesome. Eric, tell me a little bit about... Uh, the first project, right? A lot of the folks that Phil and I have on have that same kind of orange origin story of like a first project or an entry into what ultimately ends up being the business. What were some of the the surprises or the lessons that you guys took right from that first project that you've been able to kind of roll into the winter spring uh, experience? Uh, a lot of them, I'd say. So like Nick said, you know, we kind of thought, all right, we're going to find a rental property. This is the way to get into it. Um, but he kind of figured out just looking at the market in Boston that maybe it made more sense for us to try a condo play. We were seeing the price per square foot on the sellout side for these condos continuing to rise. Um, we saw East Boston, which is a neighborhood of Boston, uh, like a borough, um, really kind of on the rise. And it's and it's blown up. 10 times that since then, but this was sort of the early stages of people moving there and being interested in buying condos there, younger people. Um, so Nick found this, you know, we, we saved up for several years. Um, and then Nick found this, what was a existing two family structure, um, in a three family zone that could, uh, based on the measurements and dimensions as of right within the zoning code, we could add a third unit. And the plan was, okay, we're going to add this third unit. We're going to convert it into three condominium units um, and sell each one individually. So it required a full renovation plus an addition to the existing property. Um, so we did that. Some of the lessons along the way, I mean, I remember early on, Nick Nick taught me how to read zoning code and, and sort of what went into that and the reasons for certain things. And, 
you know, we learned oh, as far as some lessons go right away. Okay. This, some of this stuff is very outdated. Some of the zoning code was written, you know, decades ago. It doesn't really apply anymore. So some of it might not make sense, but if we want to do this project, we have to work within that. Now we'll take stuff through zoning, get variances granted. But then um, for this project, we saw this opportunity where we wouldn't have to do that. Um, another thing we learned was the plans were initially rejected and said, you need zoning, you need variances, you need approval. And Nick found out the guy, the plans examiner at the city was wrong about that and, and proved how and had to get the architect involved. So that was another lesson we kind of learned, you know, maybe the, the authorities involved in these decisions aren't necessarily uh, more knowledgeable than, than, you know, the investors. Um, so that was sort of another component to it. And we, we realized there wasn't many of those type of projects that'd be left for us. People were really gobbling them up. I mean, while we, everything's really kind of a zoning play now, you take it through zoning. While we owned it and were building it, um, the prices continued to rise. So we actually ended up selling all three units for even more than we projected, which was a nice, nice outcome and allowed us to roll into the next project and kind of scale up from there. And you all have um, transitioned into taking on passive investment investors. And so tell us about your transition, because I think a lot of people, um, what I like about you guys is it's self-made, right? Like you, you worked hard, you generated enough money for your first project, you, made, you turned a successful project, and you've kind of figured out how to scale by getting people to buy in and believe in you and to do other projects, you know? So tell us about that transition from realizing you can, you can do a lot more if you, you bring people along for the ride. Yeah. When we first got started, I actually, you know, somehow we just had never even heard about how important equity investors were in the real estate world. Um, it was, we just thought, oh, it has to be your own money. Um, and these guys doing these huge projects, they must be really rich. And, you know, those guys do have a lot of money, but not quite as much as maybe you'd imagine because they have a lot of investors, um, which I, something took us a couple of years to really figure it out and have the confidence to even say, hey, we've got this track record we've built um, on the development side. Um, and at this point, we have a couple investors <clears throat> on a couple different projects that we're doing right now. And then we have a larger project that we're almost done funding and we're trying to figure out we have a couple different options where we could go with an equity group, um, which we've never done before, or we could go with a really um, high LTC loan without any equity investors, which we've also never done before for a, a large project we've, we're pursuing right now. Um, so we've kind of built up our own investor base for smaller jobs we've done. Um, and now we're kind of branching off into maybe partnering with equity groups as, you know, the projects get bigger and bigger. We have an upcoming job that will be $25, 26000000 million valuation once it's built. Um, so it's kind of necessitating us growing, you know, to an even further degree. So investors are very important. You should build kind of a track record first. So you probably will have to use your own money for your first few deals, but maybe you have friends like I did with Eric that you'd want to partner with, or maybe it's not your friend. Maybe it's someone you meet up with at a, at a real estate group and you, you just form a joint venture. But if you want to keep growing, investors are, are definitely very important and they've helped us grow a lot in the past couple of years. 
Nick, there's a ton of, of capital in the market, but there's also a ton of competition for that capital. One of the things uh, that the winter spring model is, is really uh, appealing and, and unique, at least in our kind of experience with, with startup folks, is your commitment to generating educational and kind of informational materials on the importance of passive investing, how it works. Uh, share a little bit with us about kind of the philosophy behind content generation and where you've been able to kind of take that from uh, you know, from kind of educating uh, people who are connecting with you through your website to potentially turning them into investors with you guys. And before you start that, I wanted to say when, when I was going to introduce you guys, I didn't know let's say the, the co-founders of Winter Spring Capital and famous authors, Eric and Nick. <laughs> uh, but no, very famous. That's so, in certain <laughs> circles. It's a great question, though. Yeah, I, I think. For the first few years, we kind of ignored marketing because we thought, hey, we're building a house and then we're selling it, you know, as realtors or, or we're going to partner with a realtor. A lot of times we sell it ourselves. So that's where the marketing comes in, just selling the product. But now we kind of understand there's this what I call the karma economy where you put out helpful things to people who maybe are a couple steps behind you and trying to learn what you're doing and some of the things you've learned along the way. And maybe 1% of that comes back to you and they, they bring you a deal or they want to become an investor and that other 99%, you help them and, and, you know, you did good for the world and you helped someone else. So I think there's no downside to it. It's kind of a win-win situation where you can build a brand by helping people and establishing yourself as someone who, you know, is an expert on the topic and, We've tried to do that with the Winter Spring brand. You know, we have a ton of investor guides. We've got over a hundred thousand words worth of articles on that website about a whole bunch of different topics. A lot of a lot of articles on development, passive investing, um, basically anything that we know about with real estate. I've written an article about. Eric's written a book as well. Um, so definitely check it out on our website. A lot of helpful stuff there. That's awesome. And Eric, talk a little bit about, uh, again, kind of converting those, uh, you know, those materials into relationships. You know, Nick mentioned, you know, you know, some amount of folks who kind of connect with your website then end up, you know, coming and connecting with you guys personally. But share a little bit about, you know, how that's happened and how you've kind of grown your network beyond beyond yourselves and beyond friends and family into conversations with, you know, third party investor groups. Um, I think there's a few, you know, few components to it. Um, we had to build w once, you know, as Nick said, kind of at first we, we ignored marketing um, and then we kind of begrudgingly came into it and there was like an intentionality to it where we said, OK, I mean, we're seeing some of our peers in Boston, around the country, you know, whatever it is doing this. And we're seeing, OK, they're doing, you know, five, six projects at once. Why are we doing one at a time instead of? So what's kind of the difference here? OK, so we figured it out. Um, we produce a lot and we produced all this content. Um, it's still being produced. And so kind of how the gap was bridged is there's like I said, there's intentionality to it. So we kind of set up a whole system um, as far as the website goes and driving traffic and all this stuff that people will be drawn to it they'll learn something from all this information, very valuable. So there's so many, you know, specific topics within the real estate world and things we've done and learned about um, that you'll get people from all angles, but a lot of it is kind of aimed at 
realizing, okay, wow, I can make a lot of money through real estate or I can retire through passive real estate investments, but maybe it's not the best idea to try to do it myself. You know, so that was, that's kind of the goal. And it, it's not really like you're, you're pulling a sales pitch or a fake or anything like that. You're, um, you're presenting all the information and saying, you know, we have a lot of experience doing this. Um, maybe the best route or at least a route to consider is, you know, working with a, a firm like us, you know, something like that. Um, and in still saying it in such a way, as Nick said, that, look, if no one wants to, you know, invest with you, that's fine. They've still learned something. They can go do it on their own. Um, they might think of us then as sort of like thought leaders in the space. At least that's kind of our goal um, eventually. And so we give them the option then within our system, our website to sign up for our you know newsletter, our investor club. Then they receive information on a regular basis that they opt into. Um, and after a certain point, if we have investments that are available, they might want to ask about those. And then we can say, okay, here's kind of how something like this would work. So it really puts all the onus on them as people who might be interested in the topics that we're, you know, talking about or putting out info on, but there is an intentionality to it. Um, still kind of their choice though. We're, we're not really forcing it out there with solely that goal of, oh, okay, great. You're all going to invest with us now, you know? And this is, I love the way you guys just explain this. And this is a lot of what resonated with me when we first met you. And it's a lot of, um, I talk to lawyers about how to build business and build up their brand. And, and a lot of people think they're like, well, I'm not a salesman and I don't, I don't know how to do a sales pitch. And you're like, that is one way of doing it there. And there are lawyers who are very good at it, but you all take, you know, it's what we're trying to do with our podcast here. It's just, it's just like, I know I'm not a great at pitching sales, like in closing in a traditional uh, salesman role, but, what we do like to do is just be generous with our time and our energy and kind of share ideas and share our knowledge about things and, and a lot, you know, create this platform to allow others to share their knowledge. And then it's, it's that karma mentality uh, that Nick brought up. It's just, you know, giving a lot out there in the world and hoping you get a little bit back. And, and if not, you know what, who cares? You learn something along the way. And a lot of times it, you know, writing things or whether it be a book or an article has helped me to formulate my thoughts and understanding of, of a given topic. And um, I've also found that it has a very long tail. So it, it takes time. So you might put something out into the world. And, uh, you know, I've done podcasts where I've uh, three years ago where eventually I've reconnected with a guest and then, you know, we've had the opportunity to to collaborate on a project. You know, it's just, you never know that something that you put out there, you may not get a response the next day. It's not going to go viral. We're not, we're not putting out shot content here, but it is like good quality content and it, it does help. Uh, it, it takes time for people to recognize it and to, to collaborate on something meaningful. So anyway, I really, I really enjoy the way that you guys approach that. I've been pushing Phil to let us do more shot content and he's really been like pushing back on me. So we've really been trying to, trying to work on that. You still got to uh, get through risk management. Jay. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Um, guys, Nick, I was wondering, you were talking a little bit on the most recent projects as you're kind of scaling up and you're having this choice to make about a, a large equity investment versus a, you know, significant debt, uh, debt incurrence. In your gener in your pool of uh, projects now, are you still in a in a in a place or strategically where you're looking at a bunch of smaller investors, 
Whereas the operator or the general partner, you know, you you craft, a, you really chart the course and, and control the decision making. Or is there a universe in which you're looking to develop more programmatic relationships where, you know, a larger equity check might be coming in and they may have a little bit more say about how things run. Um, and I realize that may differ, you know, based on the projects that you guys are evaluating. But I'm wondering what your thoughts there are in terms of your operating model and, and what makes sense for you guys in the in the current term. I think um, that we're we're literally, you know, asking ourselves that question right now because we have a couple different options in front of us for this current deal, and um, we're very agreeable people. I think pretty easy to partner with. Um, so I, I we're definitely in the future we'll be working with an equity group on something um, because we want to do larger and larger projects to the point where it would be infeasible to you know, raise that all yourself, no matter how good you are at brand building. On the other hand, you know, if we had the option where we could still retain control, that's definitely, you know, attractive to us. So this project is kind of probably on the borderline where that might still be possible. Um, But, you know, we're not, we're definitely open to working with equity groups and kind of looking forward to it as like a, a next phase of this this journey. And we've seen other developers who have, you know, grown very quickly when they, they sign on with a good equity group and then they, they do their first project. And then suddenly they're doing three bigger projects with them because they built that trust. So it's definitely a good direction as a developer, especially, I think. Yeah. Eric, share a little bit about kind of developing that trust, right? Cause we've seen, you know, Phil and I've seen in our practice, we represent, uh, developers in all aspects of, of real estate development. And those developers that really thrive are those that have kind of those strong entrenched relationships with equity partners. Uh, you know, they, you know, they have a, a course of dealing, they have a, a kind of a common language that they speak and they, they understand it. You know, from your side, you know, looking at the business and kind of the day to day, talk a little bit about the, the importance of, of cultivating those relationships and, and what you're looking for ideally in, you know, in partners. And uh, that share your vision, uh, you know, give you the appropriate autonomy, but also kind of bring their experience to to help inform uh, what you guys are trying to do. Yeah, that that's a good question. It's actually something over the last year or so we've learned a lot more about, and and kind of I, I don't want to say changed our outlook. I don't really know if we had you know an outlook going into this kind of process of dealing with some of these groups and. We've kind of learned the language they speak, not, you know, not that we spoke some different language. We're still developing and, and used to it, but that the comment you made about kind of speaking the same language, I, that's certainly something that's come into play the last year. It's tough because you're trying to build that trust with these guys to say, hey, look, I'm capable of this. But then, you know, you'll have a situation which we've run into a lot. This is the one project we kind of keep referring to. It's our largest project on a, you know, unit count perspective and a gross square foot perspective, cost, everything. But, you know, we've had periods of time where we've done several projects at once that may be equal in different areas of or around Boston with different GCs that may be equal the same kind of size as this together. So we'll get a lot of questions. Well, you know, you guys have never done a, a project of this size and, you know, we'll have to think of creative but honest ways to say, yeah, you're right, but we've done this that we think based on how difficult that was and what we were able to accomplish, that was actually more difficult than doing this. So you kind of have to 
you got to sell yourself a little bit because you're trying to get in. You're trying to get that foot into the in the door into this new kind of world of of different groups you're going to be dealing with. But you have to just lay the facts out on the table. And some people aren't comfortable with that. They say, look, you know, once you've done a project of this size, we can talk again. And you have to accept that. There's really no, uh, at least in our experience, there's nothing we could really do. But we just we kind of put out as many feelers as we can, try to talk to as many people as we can. Um, some we just cold intros that have worked out. Some we've had referrals. So you, you have to be really willing to accept the, you know, willing to lean into your network. And there's always some way, somehow, someone you know that knows someone. And, and this was another thing we didn't really learn until a couple of years ago. If just we kind of organically built it without realizing what we were doing and, oh, yeah, we worked with that guy. worked And then all of a sudden we have deals coming to us. But it's it's working the same way with this equity universe of trying to raise capital. Oh, yeah, I worked with this group on this project or this broker helped me find a group. So then we could talk to that broker and they know, you know, 50 private equity firms or whether in the country or in another country. So it's, it is, we're, we're still kind of in that process and figuring out the best way to navigate it. But it's really like, you have to present yourself, show what you've done and be as confident as you can about it to say, look, you know, we've done this. Yeah, we haven't done this, but we're just as capable because we've done, you know, four projects at once for more units in total than this individual one might be. So it's a balancing act and we're learning as we go. But I'd say that's, been our approach so far just be honest show them what we have done and you know you can tell sometimes it's just not the right fit and there's you know plenty of other fish in the sea it's kind of how we look at it that's a great great way to approach it do you ever get frustrated where you're like come on these smaller projects might be harder because a yeah. lot of times they are because your due diligence costs are about the same to order yeah, a survey right. a phase one whatever they're like they don't actually cost that much more for a bigger project. Now you have a smaller margin of error and you have a, a smaller, a skinnier deal, so to speak. And so you're like, come on, these four projects was much harder than doing the one that's worth the same, same value. Cause you have, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we've had this exact conversation recently and it is almost, it, it kind of got frustrating uh, for some of the groups we were talking to, because you're literally dealing with different contractors, different sites. And in some cases we had right outside Boston and another city. So we're dealing with different cities, different regulations, different construction hours, timeframes. I mean, generally that's sort of similar, but there are different requirements for the permits that different cities issue. So we were able to handle all that at the same time. And then we say, look, we're bringing in a top tier general contractor who's taken over the whole job essentially from a construction standpoint for this one individual site while we're not focusing on four other ones that we're trying to run all at the same time that does seem much simpler to us but that that message doesn't always get across so yeah it is it is frustrating because we do feel that way about this exact situation i'd say nick is as you guys are scaling now what projects are attractive to you? What are you guys looking to do uh, both in and around Boston, but, but potentially elsewhere? Um, where do you see Winter Spring going, you know, in the, in the short, the intermediate term? And what do you guys want to pursue? So we have a property under contract. We're in the due diligence phase and it would be a office conversion um, to residential, which is a uh, space we see a lot of opportunity in especially here in Massachusetts, you have um, a lot of outdated zoning codes 
and then you have kind of these cities, former manufacturing hubs, we call them gateway cities, that have kind of, they went through a rough phase um, in the last century, in the last like 50 years, and now they've really, a lot of them have recovered quite well, um, kind of more affordable places, crime rates have dropped significantly, and they'll have these kind of main corridors with retail on the first floor and then a couple stories of office space. Um, and the zoning code will say you can't do residential there. But then, you you know, you talk to the city planner and they'll say something different. They'll say, well, you can get a special permit. We actually encourage that. They want that. There's just not the political will or the political muscle to kind of overhaul the zoning code. So, we're, you know, we're trying to use our skills um, to add value there in that space. And we're kind of excited about that. The office space, even independent of COVID, um, there's a lot of vacancies to begin with in a lot of these places. There wasn't as much demand for office, whereas there's a lot of demand for residential. So we're looking heavily into that space. You know, areas like that also are often in opportunity zones. They might have historic tax credits if they're, you know, in an area like the Northeast where it's an older building. Um, we were looking a lot in the Southeast in Florida and a couple different States, but we've kind of put that on pause, uh, in the past month and a half because we're, we're a little worried about the cap rate compression down there. Um, they've, you know, I saw a chart where cap rates have now compressed beyond even the Northeast, uh, which I just kind of seems a little strange to me and might be a little bit too much getting a little too hot down there. Whereas up here, there's not as many eyes anymore. So we're, we're kind of coming back home uh, and looking at this office conversion strategy very heavily right now. I think that's super cool. You know, the, you know, as you've kind of alluded to, right, the competition for, you know, vacant land for ground up development, whether it's multifamily or industrial or whatever, is so incredibly hot right now. Uh, but the willingness to take on, uh, you know, the challenge of an office conversion, you know, to residential, you know, leveraging the idea that, you know, those office buildings are probably in places that are super convenient for multifamily, uh, you know, close to restaurants, close to shopping, probably, you know, convenient access to and from highways. I mean, it's a slam dunk. The challenge is, right, it's a heavy lift, you know, working with the zoning code and then kind of working with the, the redesign. Uh, but I would imagine once, you know, when you guys hit on that, that's going to be an incredible story to tell uh, to investors and it's going to be a, a market ripe with opportunities for you all. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what we're thinking. And, you know, we're just trying to find ways where we can have a competitive advantage. So having built from the ground up and having got projects entitled and, and permitted in Boston, which is one of the more difficult places politically to do that in the country. Um, now we're looking at these towns where Zoning code says you can't do it, but, you know, the city is actually really happy for you to be investing in them, um, which is which is somewhat new to us, to be honest with you, because we're worse. We're used to working in a city like Boston, where there's so many so much investment that they're spoiled. And, you know, they put up all these barriers uh, and try to stop you from investing there pretty much. Um, So looking into a place where. Other people maybe aren't looking and aren't willing to embrace maybe a, a, the challenge of the special permit, but it's not actually as difficult as it sounds. You know, you get on the phone with some city officials, they support that stuff. So that's a, just be creative with stuff like that, I would say. 
just out of curiosity, when you're converting office space that's above retail in like a, a corridor like that, do you find that you have a lot of young professionals that have appetite for that? I just imagine in the Boston, greater Massachusetts area, there's a ton of higher education around there. There's tons of well-educated uh, young professionals are probably looking for places and those single family houses out in that market are really expensive, uh, you know, for for someone in their mid to late 20s. So that I would imagine that kind of like live work next to retail, coffee shops, restaurants, live above it. That would be very attractive to that demographic. That's what we're seeing. And that's I mean, we saw in this area that we're um, that we have this one building Nick referenced under agreement. Um, we have, you know, we have some other broker contacts there. They're showing us good comps, other buildings where this has started to occur, the conversions, but there's still a lot of opportunity. And one of them, I want to say, I, I think was around 50 units, Nick. And he told us there's like a 90 person waiting list. And the majority of these people are sort of that demographic you mentioned. It's close enough to Boston where they can commute in. Um, but then their lifestyle where they live is and commute in with public trends, I'm even saying. Um, but their lifestyle where they live is they have these restaurants. They have this downtown corridor. They almost feel like they're not that much different than Boston. I mean, you know, they're maybe not, they don't have the Prudential building right there, the giant malls, but it's much different than the suburbs. And they have a lot of these kind of new hip sort of places, breweries, this type of stuff, which a lot of that demographic likes. And all of this at, you know, maybe 60% of the rent that they'd pay in Boston. So a lot of these factors are, are leading us to see what you just said is absolutely true. Um, and that there's even more room for expansion. But as of now, the numbers can already work for us. So we're really excited about it. Eric, in the, um, as you're evaluating opportunities, um, you know, we just discussed, you know, maybe the Southeast doesn't make sense from a capital perspective right now. Um, is your focus right now solely in the Northeast? Are you looking, are you looking potentially at other markets in the Midwest or other Rust Belt cities that may be having, you know, similar renaissances or efforts at renaissancing uh, to potentially uh, explore those types of, of conversions there or for right now and for the for the near term, the Northeast is really where you see the most opportunity for, for winter spring to really grow? I'd say it's heavily Northeast focused. We built up a lot of contacts down there um, in sort of the entire Southeast of the country. So we still get calls and emails from brokers with deals all the time. Um, and if something really stands out to us that, okay, this could be a really good opportunity, we're not going to pass it up. Um, we're going to at least look into it and maybe submit an LOI and sort of see where we get if we can, if we can work it. But I'd say 90 plus percent focus right now is back up here. Yeah, that's super interesting to me, but it makes sense. Um, but you know, for a year or so, all I've heard is Southeast. That's where everything's happening. Um, that's where the migration is going. So it's, it's, you know, as a Chicago guy, I like to hear that maybe it's getting a little, a little overheated down there from like making the numbers work, unless you're making a big bet that it just continues to, to go yeah. that trajectory, which, you know, many people can and will. Um, yeah. That's what we're seeing. It's almost like we have a, a mortgage broker we've worked with down there and he's telling us like 95% of his loans now are bridge loans because he can't get the numbers to work for, you know, Fannie Mae, an agency loan 
um, with their requirements. So it's almost like the play is you got to you go in, you add value somehow, even if there's not much value to add. They they figure out some way to say, okay, the three year pro forma numbers. This is what I'm really basing my investment on, and maybe we'll get it from a four cap up to a five and a half from our basis at that point, and then we kind of we can refinance with an agency loan and we're actually making a little bit of money where it's attractive, but it can't work as is, you know, we're seeing that with a massive percentage of deals down there. And it's kind of hard to base your investment off three years, you know, in the future when there are other opportunities that could work right now, you know? Yeah. Nick, speaking of other challenges, our developer clients are right. It's always a battle for talent and for materials and, you know, the costs and the, the, the delays and, and all of those challenges are really, you know, making planning and, and capital raises more challenging. What are you guys seeing in your experience right now? And how are you, you know, in deals that are, are pending and deals that are under contract? How are you, you know, assessing those risks and those challenges, both for yourselves and your balance sheets and your, your projections and also for your investors? Where are you forecasting those challenges going here in the next six to 12 months? So right now we're, we're, you know, we're looking at for new construction, um, almost 50 bucks a square foot higher cost than it would have been pre before all these supply chain issues. Um, lumber's coming back down to earth a little bit, but metals are still all backed up from what I've read. And I'm, you know, I'm not a, an expert on supply chain economics, but it seems like maybe we're, we're still in this for another year or so with um, some screwed up prices. So you got to just bake that into your budget, which we've done. We have active projects and we've just, uh, you know, we get them quoted from our contractors who tell us like, hey, this is a lot higher than it would have been a year ago, a year and a half ago, but it is what it is. And if the numbers work, the numbers work. Um, from an economic perspective, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is beginning tapering I guess, uh, later this month. So I don't know what, what impact that will have on the real estate market, but it might have some impact on the stock market, I'd imagine. So that's kind of my overall impression. We're still pretty bullish on the stuff we're doing. Uh, we're in affordable, we're in the affordable housing space. Now we're we're getting our first project done, which I see something that's going to be more and more prominent in the coming decades. So we have confidence in the projects we're doing, like in Boston, huge supply chain shortage, um, big life science industry kind of shrugged off a lot of the damage during the COVID prices just kept rising. So we have confidence in those projects um, and we have a lot of confidence in this office conversion in more affordable markets because you know, you're looking at rentals and you're looking at more affordable rentals, but they're nicer. So they'll probably do well, even if the economy kind of has some trouble. Yeah. So Eric, 
Share with us a little bit about your kind of foray into affordable housing. Uh, obviously, that's going to be a huge driver in, in cities and, and towns throughout the country. It already is, of course. But share a little bit about kind of Winter Springs uh, experience in that market, kind of your initial forays and, and how, uh, as I listen to you talk today, kind of your experience in navigating, you know, arcane codes, you know, may put you in a strong position to be able to kind of speak the regulatory language that are sometimes baked into, you know, city and federal affordable housing requirements. Uh, so share a little bit about your experience there and what you might see going forward in that space. Uh, yeah, good question. I, I think a lot of stuff is sort of contributed to our current view and, and opinion on this whole thing and our goals of working with the city of Boston, specifically in our case. So a lot of times, you know, we, we sort of, when we started off doing condo projects in and around the different neighborhoods of Boston, we, we'd always hear, you know, these prices are crazy and all this. And it was, you know, we were just doing what worked within the market and there were buyers for them who wanted to move there and have a new home and live in a condo. So, you know, so be it. But then we, we started seeing, okay, there's certain requirements now in Boston, at least any building where you're over nine units, you need to have 13% of your units need to be affordable. And that's based on, you know, the area median income and, and sort of what percentage bracket do they say it needs to be affordable based on 80% AMI area median income or 100% or 60. And then whatever that is, there's certain, there's, you know, a whole chart Boston has where it updates every year, but a price um, that you can sell it at or rent it at the maximum. So a lot of our projects sort of maxed out at that nine and a lot of developers did that as well in Boston because you avoid that. And once you get to 10 is almost really not an economical number. You almost have to go 12 or higher because you're, you're selling or renting that unit for a lot less than it actually costs you to build. So we didn't really like that component. We were a little negative about that at first, but then we started to see, okay, look, Boston is not shying away from this. They, they're trying to increase the supply of affordable housing. Housing prices here are nuts. I mean, even someone who's making an above average salary really can't afford some of these condos that you know we're building. It just There's still a market for them, of course, tons of people buying, but there's a huge segment of the population that couldn't be homeowners in Boston. So that's kind of where this affordable thing comes into play, where you know, we started working with an architect um, who had some history doing affordable developments with the city of Boston, kind of knew what the process was. He told us, you know, I, you guys could be good candidates for this. Um, we had a lot of questions about it. How does this work? How can you actually do this? You're going to take it at a loss. We're still a company that needs to operate. It's literally going to be a massive loss if we built these units and could only sell them for a quarter of the market rate, which is kind of what it is, depending on the neighborhood. So we, we formed a good relationship with the Department of Neighborhood Development. Uh, there's a woman over there who really likes us. Uh, we submitted a proposal um, once we kind of figured out how it worked that, all right, look, they'll, the city will subsidize the difference because they want affordable housing. And then you simply get a developer fee for your overhead and running the company. So there's no profit or anything. You would take a massive loss if you built and sold for what they wanted. But we figured out, okay, look, we can still operate our company. We can do something good for the community. And we can sort of get our name in there and our brand and say, look, you know, we're not just about building luxury condos. We can um, also provide needed affordable housing in this city, which we see potentially the current, the new mayor who's going to come in might in, try to increase that minimum from 13 to 25% of any development. So rather than kind of fight against this, we said, all right, well, you know, the result is still good. There's still people who should be able to afford something and really can't. 
um, on a normal or even like I said, above average salary that, uh, let's, let's dip our toe into this instead of swimming, you know, against the stream, let's just go with it. Uh, we can still do our own, you know, free market sort of projects, but then we can incorporate this. And so, yeah, our first foray is seven units across four sites, six home ownership units, um, and then one rental. And so the city will subsidize the difference of what we can sell them for to what it costs to build. We put in a bid to say, look, we can do it for this much. Um, this is how much we'd want as a developer fee. And then they kind of, you know, view all the bids. They And they probably, they, they don't want it very well quality. They still want it to a certain quality level. So they, they kind of balance it all out and say, okay, this is the cheapest. These are the guys who are willing to do it for the cheapest, but also still meet the standard we want. And then, you know, they kind of interview everyone, see what your, you know, uh, points of view are on this, what your real goals are. And, uh, you know, our, we, we won the bid for our first proposal and it worked out very well. And I think it's a really uh, going to be a nice start to maybe doing larger affordable projects where uh, financially it makes sense as a company to do it. That's really cool. Thanks for explaining that process yeah. and how you're able to uh, to generate uh, that public good of affordable housing while, um, while still keeping the lights on. You know, that's, yeah, right. That was really interesting to hear hear your journey through that. We'll get you, I want to be respectful of your time. So we'll get you out of here. We can either make a prediction for 2022 and what you see in the market, or you can tell us uh, who used to power lift the most. Uh, that's the second one's a lot easier. That would be Nick. <laughs> he set some records for his weight class in, in our high school, <laughs> still on the wall, I think. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. If you, you know, you want to hear our predictions, I mean, I, I'm, we're still, as I said, we're still bullish on, uh, on Boston just due to the, the supply chain shortage here. And the fact that there's so, you know, you drive in any cardinal direction in the greater Boston area, you're going to drive by laboratory space being built, life science space being built. Moderna, one of the vaccine producers is headquarters in Cambridge you know, our, our, our upcoming uh, project that I mentioned, the large one, is five minutes from Harvard and MIT. So we kind of see that demographic um, continuing to to buy the, the product that we're building. Overall, for the market, you know, I, I don't want to make any deep predictions. I'm not an economist, but I do think there's some uncertainty, which is why we put a, a pause on the Southeast search, and we're trying to be a little bit more cautious about okay, maybe in this office space, we can add much more value than buying, you know, a deal down there and we can kind of have a higher margin and a little more safety. All right. Well, Eric, Nick, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, we've co-founders of Winter's Spring Capital, uh, famous authors, power lifters, and macroeconomics uh, professors. Uh, we really appreciate uh -huh. your time today. Yeah, check them out at winterspringcapital.com. Tons of great material there. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thanks again. Thanks guys. for having us. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 